You're listening to Louisiana Insider, a superlative guide to a great state's destinations. Hosted by Errol Laborde, executive editor of Louisiana Life Magazine. It's not Louisiana song. It's my favorite melody. It's not Louisiana song. Hearing it echo through the cypress trees. Our topic today is the Chafalaya Basin, a very important topic in Louisiana. If ever you're driving along I-10, for those of you who may not be totally familiar, there's a port if you're going all the way across where you're driving across the Chafalaya Basin. Uh, you know, there's signs marking and there's some of the, the things along the way. And so we're going um, to talk a little bit about the, the basin, which you might see. But uh, uh, with me are two guys who are really expert. Uh, one is Brian Piazza who's the Director of Freshwater and Marine Science for the Nature Conservancy. And the other is Joseph Baustian, who's a wetlands ecologist also for the Nature Conservancy. And we should add that uh, Brian has a book about the Atchafalaya called The Atchafalaya River Basin, History and Ecology of an American Wetland. Well, I always thought that whichever one wants to take the, the first pitch here, just describe to the listener exactly what the basin is. Go ahead, Brian. <laughs> so, well, the basin is really a, an amazing place in the center of our country. It's uh, a million acres, about a million acres in size, about 850,000 of that is uh, forested wetlands. About 150,000 is the only building coastal delta wetland uh, we have in Louisiana and perhaps across the Gulf. Um, we've got about 300,000 acres of coastal cypress forest, uh, which is the largest uh, stand left. Um, and it's, it's, this is a million acres of, you know, undeveloped wetlands. Uh, there's not people that live out there on a permanent basis. Uh, um, there's, it's just uh, water and, and wetlands. And it's a place, it's a really large landscape uh, for the middle of our country. I think uh, the estimate when I visited um, the Grand Canyon I saw a sign there that said that the Grand Canyon was about a million acres in size. And I thought that was really interesting coming from a place where we have a million acre wetland just down the road from us. And when you, when you go out in the basin and you, you launch your boat out there, you can uh, drive a boat uh, all day and perhaps not even see another person uh, or very few people. So it has this, uh, this wilderness feel to it. Um, and the flip side of that is while it is, has this wilderness feel, it's extensively hydrologically engineered uh, for flood protection, uh, navigation, uh, early timber uh, harvest, and then later oil and gas development. And so you're in sort of this hybrid system that feels and exists very wild, but is also uh, the consequence, uh, partially the consequence of extensive uh, engineering that's been done uh, in the basin and and um, has and we see still see the effects of that uh, today There's yeah, a, I, wanna, I, I just add I was going to add one thing the historic boundary of the basin is much larger than it is today 
Historically, the Atchafalaya Basin was defined on the eastern edge by the Mississippi River and Bayou Lafourche headed down south, and on the western side by Bayou Teche. Today, what's typically considered the basin is only the area that's within the levee. So the area has been shrunk by about 50%. And like Brian said, it's still a large body of, of wetlands and land there, but it's only about half as big as it would have been historically. So what do we lose by that shrinkage? We lose some floodplain conductivity, some habitat conductivity. You have some areas that are between the Mississippi River and the Atchafalaya River levees that are sort of in their own unique little hydrologic unit now. And so they don't get the benefit of the floodplain reconnecting with those wetlands. So the cypress trees and the swamps kind of suffer. Some of the wildlife suffers. It's that rejuvenation of river flooding, annual river flooding that's really made the Atchafalaya Basin such a productive and remarkable place over the past few thousand years. Um, talking about the size, the uh, recent issue of Louisiana Life, the cover story was uh, about the Atchafalaya Basin and, and these two guys were the, were the main sources, a very interesting article. And that, that issue is still probably out on the newsstands if, you, uh, if you're interested in it, and it's on the website. Uh, there was a place where they mentioned some superlatives. And one thing they mentioned is, is what you mentioned with the Grand Canyon, where it says that the basin is four-fifths as large as the Grand Canyon, which is still pretty damn big, uh, larger than the state of Rhode Island and larger than Yosemite National Park. Um, so, and, and it stretches what along several parishes, um, beginning in Concordia Parish and down to St. Mary Parish. So, it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a big chunk of land. Let me ask um, Cyprus. When I'm driving along that stretch of I 10, I see a lot of Cyprus knees, uh, which implies to me, I mean, a forest industry. And I'm glad you say, are there still a lot of cypress growing because that's all chopped down cypress? Yeah, there's a there's a lot of cypress and the amount of cypress increases as you um, proceed south uh, in the basin. Uh, what you're seeing when you cross I-10 are the cypress trees that are in the, the Henderson Lake unit. Um, that's an impounded part of the basin. Um, you see a lot, actually a lot of the old stumps from the cypress. As you pass, uh, as you go farther south uh, in the basin and you go towards St. Mary Parish, actually, um, the amount of the elevation in the basin drops uh, um, down eventually to sea level. And as you go down that hill, uh, the percentage of the cypress trees increases because th those lands stay wetter longer and those cypress trees can outcompete everything else because they can stay flooded. So the area sort of north of I-10, you get a lot of, you know, oaks and ashes and things. And then in the deeper parts, the, the, the areas that hold water, you get more of your cypress trees. And then that, that transitions um, the area that we uh, visited during the Louisiana Life article is kind of midway through the basin. And in that area, we have extensive cypress swamps. Uh, when you walk in, the higher ground has sort of what we call a bottomland hardwood forest community that has more of those, those tree species that exist on the higher banks and then grades down into cypress. And as you move south uh, of our property, uh, you get uh, that that starts to to change into more and more cypress trees as you move south. In and then of course, then you get to the, the, the delta 
once you get south of Morgan City and then you have, uh, you know, a coastal wetland community. Can cypress be formed legally now? I mean, can people go down there and chop down cypress? If they were inclined, but it doesn't really work economically inside of the Atchafalaya Basin. It's too expensive to get the trees out because you'd have to use a barge or a helicopter and it just doesn't really make a lot of economic sense. Most of the logging happened between 1880 and 1920 or so. And once the levees were put up, um, in the, depending on where you're at in the basin between the late 30s and the early 40s, that was pretty much the end of, of logging in the basin, except for a few general exceptions. Um, and so what we see now are not mostly old growth trees. While they're quite large, most of them are only maybe 150 years old or so. There's a handful of trees which we see that are still the original old growth trees, which may be a thousand plus years old, but those are pretty rare to see. Uh, they're, they're not generally in a giant stand together. They're sporadic, one tree here, one tree there. And they were generally left in place because when the loggers came through, they were hollow. And so there didn't hold a lot of economic value to make timber or, or shingles if you have a hollow tree. So those ones are left in place. And we've got some good examples on our uh, Chafalaya Basin Preserve that the Nature Conservancy has out there. We have some trees that are wider than eight feet at the base. So they're pretty massive trees once you get out there and you can actually kind of picture what the scale must have been like prior to logging. Yeah. Uh, I live in, a, in an old house that was built in, uh, in 1910, um, and some of it, maybe most of it, was built with cypress. And uh, I remember the first time I went up in the attic, and it smelled like cypress. It smelled like fresh <laughs> cypress. All these years later, uh, that smell preserved. And uh, on the one hand, I was kind of proud to be living in a cypress house, but on the other hand, I said, well, maybe I should be kind of ashamed of this. I, I don't know. But would you tell me, if in 1910, it was a common thing, I mean, uh, for people to be forming cypress. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, the, the basin was logged when much of the eastern part of the United States was logged. It wasn't, um, this wasn't unique to Louisiana. This was going on across the country in the, in the timber, timber boom. So, yeah. So your, your house was probably built like many of the houses in this area where they were using local lumber to build them. Where else would Cyprus have come from? I always thought Louisiana was sort of like the, the Cyprus area, but are there other places in the, in the country that have a, a lot of Cyprus? Uh, yeah, some of the, the drowned river mouth estuaries on the East Coast have Cyprus when you get up into the fresher areas. And Cypress trees natural range actually goes all the way up the Mississippi River Basin into Southern Illinois is kind of the oh, most- Oh, really? Yeah, that's the extent of their range. They can handle some cold, but it's, that seems to be about the limit right now. People can plant them and have them survive in their yards up further north, but naturally occurrence is sort of right where the Ohio and the Mississippi rivers combine. Yeah. Um, I've seen this spot. If you ever take the, uh, the city of New Orleans the train uh, to Chicago, uh, where it crosses at Cairo, it's right at that spot. And you see like this green water and this brown water all converging in one place. That's um, kind of interesting. The, um, the thrust of the article, I'm gonna ask you all to explain it, was about water, as you all describe it, the plumbing in the Atchafalaya, uh, trying to fix the, the plumbing because a lot of the water flow that's needed to maintain the swamps has been diverted for, for different ways. And, and so uh, there's some things that need to be done. So um, Brian, why don't we throw it with you? Why don't you explain exactly what the issue is? 
Yeah. So as I was saying there, you know, that system is really altered uh, and engineered hydrologically. So it's been engineered at the system wide level, the, the, the whole system through the, the old river control structure, as well as a lot of dredging and what we call channel training um, to and, move and water. A big moment would have been the flood of 1927, because that made them redo the whole flood system in Louisiana, put yep. the Mississippi and the Atchafalaya in a straitjacket, and then had big impact on all the tributaries. That's correct. 1927 fundamentally changed our relationship uh, to the river. Um, you know, when the U.S. government said that flood, flooding of that magnitude would never happen, uh, would be never be allowed to happen in the lower river again. And so then, as you were uh, correctly uh, stated, the Mississippi Rivers and Tributaries Act was enacted. And so um, the levees and the levee system and that floodway uh, that was developed, um, you know, we can trace, we know about when uh, those levees were constructed uh, in portions uh, of the basin. So where we were during, where we visited during um, our trip for the article, uh, that the levee came through there about 1934. And, and uh, we actually know where some of the bayous that used to flow uh, we have where the driveway is actually was where the old bayou flowed before there was a levee, um, where that driveway to come over the levee. So we know that that levee went through there about 1934. Um, and so this wasn't, uh, again, this was, as you stated, a system-wide uh, thing, and it had major impacts in the Atchafalaya Basin. And so once you constricted that area and you put all of that water into a smaller area, uh, you, you started to see um, a lot of the changes that you saw see in the basin. And so going back to hydrologic modification, uh, the old river control structure itself, the levees, uh, a vast amount of uh, dredging and, and channel training that was done in the basin uh, to uh, keep deep water, deep enough water for navigation, as well as to get water out of the basin uh, and also control the fact that the Mississippi River uh, wants to divert hydraulically, wants to come through the Atchafalaya Basin. And so there was a lot done there to keep that system static at the system-wide level. So then you come in, um, there, there was a lot of uh, dredging and, and uh, canals um, that were made for, you know, uh, pipelines and timber before that. And, and with those, with those canals, uh, there are canal banks. And in these Southern systems like this, that don't have a lot of kind of elevational relief, it doesn't take a lot of blockage to stop water and, and stagnate water and keep it from flowing. And so we've had a combination of, of, you know, this, we, we had a lot of uh, distributary closures in the basin, which didn't allow for the sheet flowing of water across that wetland swamp. We wanted to channelize it. There was a desire to channelize it and get it out. And so the issue is that the swamp forest is cut off from the river flow. So it takes higher and higher river floods to get water up over the levees and into the forest. And once it gets in, uh, if there are canal banks, it, it can't get can't get out and we end up with 
large stagnant masses of water that persist uh, for long periods of time uh, in the basin. And then the oxygen drops out of the water. Uh, in warm weather months, we can have large fish kills. Uh, it stunts the trees, going back to your discussion earlier about the cypress health. Uh, we know it stunts the trees. We know that it has effect on crawfish. Um, uh, we, know, we know that it has uh, an effect on the ability of those forests to remove carbon from the atmosphere, carbon dioxide. We know that it has an effect uh, on that uh, forest and those soils to remove nitrate, uh, which is the lead contributor of the dead zone. Uh, that we have off our Louisiana coast each summer. So, so this broken plumbing system uh, needs to be addressed um, so that water can, uh, so that that river water can connect back with those swamps that it built uh, in order to maintain them. It's a very similar situation to what you do, what we've done in the coastal zone by uh, allowing the river um, to get back into our coastal wetlands. Um. Some spillways were built out in Morganza. There was a uh, there's a spillway, and there have been a few times, not a lot of times, but a few times when they've when they've opened the spillway because of high waters. Um, Joseph, what does that do other than save New Orleans? Okay, which uh, but but in terms to the ecology and to the area, yeah. uh, every time the spillways are open, Morganza spillway has only been open twice, 1973 and 2011. Uh, up at Old River, there's actually a series of control structures which the Corps of Engineers operates on a daily basis. They measure the flow in the Mississippi, they measure the flow in the Red River, because one thing we haven't mentioned yet is that the Red River actually terminates into the Atchafalaya River. So the Atchafalaya River starts where the Red ends and where some of the Mississippi River water comes in. And the Corps has the ability every day to manage those structures in a way that they can increase the flow out of the river or decrease the flow out of the Mississippi. Uh, just depends on what the stage is of that river. So there's actually a lot of capacity to move flood water before you ever have to get to the spillway. The spillway openings have been so few and far between on, on the Morganza side of things that it's not really a good body of knowledge to understand what had happened. You definitely get some deeper water on the eastern side of the basin, but it's temporary, right? The river floods, it comes up and then the water goes back down, they close the structure. And so the water has a chance to vacate the floodplain where it normally doesn't get on top of um, in normal years. So there's not a lot of this known, but it's generally seen as a simple large floods like that can be a rejuvenated, have a rejuvenating impact on the swamp if they deliver a lot of that fresh water and sediment and nutrients back into the swamp to kind of act as fertilizer and increase tree growth and increase growth of little aquatic organisms like insects and then crawfish and then pretty much everything in the swamp eats crawfish. So whether you're a, a frog, a turtle, an alligator, a bird, everybody eats crawfish, especially us, you know? And historically that's been a huge industry for folks who live around the Atchafalaya Basin is that fishing for freshwater species, a lot of commercial catfishing, but then also that commercial crawfishing. You know, these days so many crawfish are grown in ponds, but with ponds, you have a shallow body of water that kind of limits how much you can do at the warmer months of the year, let's say. So like right now, the water in those ponds is only a couple feet deep. And so it's so hot that the crawfish has sort of gone to a different part of their life cycle and burrowed into the, into the mud. Where in the Atchafalaya, we still have decently high water for this time of year and the water is deeper. So it tends to be underneath the trees as well. And so it's shaded, it stays a little bit cooler. You know, the water flows in from 
states as far as Montana and New York, you know, it's 41% of the United States is drained through the Mississippi and Atchafalaya rivers. So that water can be coming from somewhere much further up north and it stays colder, which is a little bit of a sort of, let's say, refreshing experience for a crawfish in the summertime. They don't have to burrow in and find that coolness down in the ground like they might in a crawfish pond. So the crawfish season, at least in terms of availability down here, uh, it's usually till around June. Yeah. The, the tails start getting hard uh, by then. So are you saying that the crawfish that grow wild in the Atchafalaya, that they have a longer season? Uh, there's a chance that you could catch them longer, yes. And that it's also complicated because rice fields are often used for crawfish farms. So they get converted to crops at one some point through the year. But, but yeah, there's a chance. But then the crawfish's life cycle also is varied depending on the season. And so they, the females start to have more eggs on them as you get later in the summertime. And so historically, that's what the crawfish men in the basin just saw. When they started to see females with eggs, they knew it was time to stop crawfish. And that was typically around June because you need those females to be around for next year so that those eggs get laid and the new crawfish hatch, so you can harvest them again next season. Sure, absolutely. Well, um, and the other um, spillway, of course, is the Bonnet Carrey. Now that's been open more times, hasn't it? Quite a bit, yes. And what impact has that had? Well, nothing on the Atchafalaya Basin. Its its impact has been studied a little Pontchartrain. bit more widely. Yeah, on by yeah. on Lake Pontchartrain and then possibly Mississippi Sound as well. That's a lot of more of a freshwater uh, impact to those systems, which can be a little bit brackish at times, and so it can change the ecology. But those things are are temporary pulses of water. So when the spillway closes the lake has a chance to rebound and get back to its pre-spillway opening conditions. And depending on how large the opening was, that can take, you know, a couple of weeks or a couple of months, but it eventually will always get back to its normal state. You know, we talk about the impact on the tributaries. It reminds me that uh, my family was from a Vars parish and the bayou was Bayou de Glaze, uh, which drained off of the Atchafalaya. And it's, it's always been a little nothing bayou. I mean, really not a lot to it. But you hear stories about the old days when these packet boats would come and they'd be and they'd be selling items and people would go and I mean the, the bayou was really kind of a festive place. It was also it flooded there in 1927, but now it's really nothing and there's a little lock down at the end which, which controls it. But I can kind of see the impact what that did. It wouldn't be great to see the bayou as it used to be, but again. <laughs> we lose the flooding. So I guess that's worthwhile. Yeah, I, t I tell people that uh, um, if, if you could have a time machine, I would, I would go back to the, uh, to the Atchafalaya when it was a wild place uh, to see what it was like. And, um, you know, before the levees and, and everything back, you know, when people were using it, you know, it was a, it was a major, you know, transportation route for, everybody trying to move in and across the basin the native uh, people, the, and then later the Cajun people, um, you know, they had communities out there. Most famous one probably is Bayou Shane. And, and um, you know, there were, there are areas out there now that are forests that people said, Oh yeah, back there was a Bayou and there was a, a general store back there. And you're like, you know, you, you look at the area that's now a forest and you're like, wow, the, the amount of change has been has been really something uh, in the, in that place. That's the area that really is part of the 
the image of Louisiana, that kind of like bayou swamp, uh, you know, pass a good time sort of uh, area. Yeah. yeah. If people yep. aren't thinking of New Orleans, they're thinking of, I mean, they're thinking of Louisiana, they're thinking of cypress trees, alligators, swamps, crawfish, and Tefalaya's got it all. By the way, speaking of alligators, we've been hearing about this really overpopulated, there's like a million alligators in, uh, in Louisiana now. Are you all seeing that in the, uh, in the basin? Yeah, we see um, an increase uh, in alligators across the state. You know, Louisiana was uh, is is really, and the Atchafalaya was was really a, a key place to you know when alligators were really uh, becoming endangered. And it was the same thing with the Louisiana black bear. It was uh, you know this big, huge block of uh, really remote habitat was very important for both of these species. Uh, in the early part of, of their recovery. Um, and uh, Louisiana has really been highlighted uh, as, you know, assisting greatly with the recovery of the alligator across its range um, and uh, the management system that had, uh, was put in place here to help recover alligators has been used for crocodilians uh, worldwide. So it, uh, Louisiana really uh, made a huge contribution, not just here uh, in our state, uh, but across the, the rest of the region and across the world. What in particular did we do? Well, the, uh, the, uh, there was a partnership uh, made where, you know, alligators were, were, you know, there was a farm industry that, that grew up and there's, there was egg collecting for, um, and that still goes on now for the farms. And then once uh, the farms would grow out their alligators, they were required to return a percentage of those small alligators um, back in, into the wild. Um, and so it was just, it was basically like a partnership. You know, people agreed that they didn't want to lose the alligator. Um, and they worked together to find a common solution that allowed um, us to have the alligator industry that was so important at the time in Louisiana um, and, and also uh, rebuild the alligator as an important and iconic species to Louisiana and also a very key part uh, in the food web of these swamp systems. And so I, I've pulled it up as a real uh, um, American wildlife success story where um, good management principles uh, and people from across different ideas and ideals and perspectives and, um, and expertise came together to generate a solution that, that really worked. And today uh, we have got um, a, a really good population of alligators to where you know, there's a lottery system for recreational hunting of alligators in Louisiana. Who would have thought of that, uh, that that would be something that would even be a management option uh, all those years ago when we barely had any alligators left. So um, I, I think uh, Louisiana should be proud of that contribution to wildlife management. And another success story has been the pelican, hasn't it? Yeah, exactly. It was on the brink of extinction as well. And as that was due to the pesticide use, you know, back in the first half of the 20th century, the DDT caused all these problems for eggshells that wouldn't get hard enough. And so then the eggs would all fall apart before they could hatch. But 
that was a big management program. That was more of a regional program as well, not just Louisiana, but the entire Southeastern United States kind of worked together to reintroduce some pelicans from places where they had have, had managed to hang on in population and they've expanded in the state. Department of Wildlife and Fisheries does a good job here of trying to maintain some of the pelicans main breeding grounds, which are some islands in Barataria Bay or some of our other big coastal lakes and bays that we have across the state. Uh, this is beautiful birds. It's so great just to see them gliding over. Uh, uh, both of you with the, uh, what's called the Nature Conservancy, what is that? What does it do? Well, it's been around, believe it or not, for since, Brian, what, 1957? Okay. That's pretty close, yeah. That's about 65 years We'll old. accept that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, right, but so the, our, the easiest way to explain it is that our, our mission is to protect the life, protect the lands and waters on which all life depends. So whether that's a pelican or an alligator or a person, like our, our main mission is to try and protect land so that it can be utilized in the future for all forms of life. Okay. Yeah, and we work, uh, we work across, we're the world's largest uh, uh, private conservation organization. We work across all the U.S. states, and we work in 72 countries across the world um, in Louisiana. Um, so I guess globally, we've protected about 20 million acres uh, globally. Um, in, uh, in Louisiana, we've uh, protected uh, over over 350,000, between 350,000 and 400,000 acres of land. Uh, we work, uh, we only manage about 35,000 acres right now in a series of preserves across the state. Um, we're, we're active all across the state. Um, a lot of the lands uh, that we've helped protect have gone into things that people use like uh, national wildlife refuges, uh, wildlife management, uh, areas, uh, state parks. Um, and so uh, we work uh, with, with anyone who wants to do conservation um, and we find innovative ways to solve problems. Um, we, we're, we try to work in an innovative and non-confrontational approach to get uh, to address the problems uh, facing our world. Um, we, have, we were created by scientists from the Ecological Society of America uh, who wanted to do something about uh, the the, the uh, devastation of nature they were witnessing. And so um, we had our first preserve was uh, in the Mianus River Gorge in North New York State. Uh, and we still uh, own and operate that preserve to this day. Um, so we're pretty proud of our, our work. Uh, we have over um, probably about a almost... 20% uh, of our staff are scientists, um, but we have people from, you know, marketing, communication, finance, accounting. Uh, we have a, a great diversity of people across our staff who use their diverse talents to help protect nature and work on some of the biggest challenges we're facing today, like climate change and the biodiversity uh, loss crisis. Um, so, that's kind of a little bit about us. A lot of people in this area know us from our Cypress Island Preserve, which is about 9,000 acres uh, over in uh, uh, um, adjacent to Lake Martin. Is that something that people can go visit easily? Or? Yep, yes. we have a visitor center uh, there and um, 
think the country counts over 50 countries uh, yeah, in our sign-in a, books now. Yeah, Lake Martin is south of Brobridge there on the western edge of the Atchafalaya Basin. And our preserve is mostly cypress swamp over there. We do have a little trail, little trail. It goes actually about five miles around the lake. Part of it is closed right now because on the western edge, alligators like to nest. And it's not really safe for people to be walking around the alligator nests when the mom's there protecting the eggs. So right now, <laughs> yeah. So right now, part of the road, part of the trail is closed, but you can still make kind of like a C shape. You know, you can't go all the way a loop. You can make a C shape and go around. And it's a great place if you like to see a lot of different wading birds and some migratory birds at different times of the year as well. And lots of alligators there too. Yeah. We have a just absolutely gorgeous painted mural on the wall of the swamp scene that was painted by some local artists with all kinds. You just stand and look and you see more and more species of birds. And the longer you look at it, it's just fantastic. Um, the bird that all of it, was it the, uh, that all of it had on, on his birds of North America, the, uh, the spoonbill, the, uh, Rosette Spoonbill. Mm -hmm. Rosette Spoonbill. Yeah, yeah. We were talking to somebody last week, and he said that that population is really growing. Uh, that when he goes out, he sees. So, yeah. I thought it was near extinct, but anyway, but it's, but, but no, it's, it's okay. Yeah. It right. actually nests at Lake Martin, too. You can, it's a little bit late in the year now, but in the spring, they have nests up in trees, and you can go see if you take a boat tour or a kayak around the area, you can see some spoonbills nesting. Yeah, the, those uh, species of wading birds um, are really doing well. That was another species, the, that was another group of birds that were, uh, um, they were very valued for their ornate breeding plumage, their feathers. And so um, at one time, those populations were uh, being uh, hunted to very dangerous levels because of the, the feathers were being used, uh, you know, in hats and different things like that. Uh, at one time. And so those populations are, are, are doing well, um, much uh, because of places like the Atchafalaya Basin and Cypress Island, these big, um, you know, these big areas of, of uh, swamp forest where they can nest and, and uh, live in these habitats. And a lot of times wading birds will, you know, they'll change where they nest. They'll have shifts in what's called these rookeries. Um, and we don't exactly know why they change locations, but you can, they'll move around. And so sometimes people will see a rookery pop up and they'll, they'll, um, you know, the, while they think that maybe there's a ton more birds, they might be just have moved from uh, other places uh, nearby where they didn't previously see them. But uh, but overall, those populations are doing well across all of those species of wading birds. And we only have a few minutes left. So let me ask you a couple of questions. One that probably takes hours to answer, but if you can give me a, give you a short answer. Uh, the whole we begin the conversation talking about the so-called plumbing problem, you know, getting more water uh, through the system. What can be done? Well, the state of Louisiana has had a restoration program that they've been trying to get off the ground for a number of years, 10 years now, exactly. And we have welcomed, uh, we are kind of partnering with the state so that they can implement parts of this restoration program on the land, which we own in the Atchafalaya Basin, our Atchafalaya Basin Preserve. And that's only gonna be a small piece. You know, one of the problems with the broken plumbing is that it, it's such an expansive problem, maybe 200,000 acres are impacted by this. And so we're working with the state to implement a little pilot project where we're gonna reconnect 
some of these historic bayous, which were filled in when the channels, when some of the flood control channels were dredged. We're going to reconnect these little bayous so that water can more easily flow back into the swamp. And then we're going to cut some gaps in spoil banks along pipeline canals so that once the water gets back in the swamp, it can continue to flow through the swamp. So it's that flow through that constant connection with the floodplain during, with the river and its floodplain during high water areas that really will allow this area to come back and relieve that stagnation, reduce the hypoxia and get the trees and crawfish and everything else growing as it once did historically. So you, do you, you all, is this gonna happen or is it just a dream right now? Or is it in progress or? Uh... Oh, it's, it's in progress. There's been some, you know, permits have been applied for, engineering has been done. So the state has money. We've privately fundraised some money for this as well. So it's, uh, it's gonna happen and can't put exact timeline on it right now, but it's something that we've been working on with the state for a number of years. Like roughly, like within the, within the next decade or? Oh, hopefully year or two, max. Yeah. Great, okay. Yeah. Okay. And just a couple of far out questions. When you go along I-10 and you're passing over the Chafalaya, there's a sign that points to, that mentions a place called Whiskey Bay. Have you ever seen that? Mm -hmm. What was, it's all kind of rumors, all right? That that's where Earl Long hit his booze, that kind of stuff, you know? What, what is Whiskey Bay? Was that a real place or is that a, something that a sign maker invented? Or, or do we not know? Okay, yeah, well, it was a real place. Because it, was it a, might be true that Earl Long hit his whiskey there. And so. It, yeah, it was a bay as in that it was an open body of water. Sometimes yeah. things get called bays or lakes or, you know, it's something that, but it doesn't necessarily describe what they actually are. So Whiskey Bay was a body of water and it's since mostly filled in. And now we have part of the flood control effort for the Corps was dredging some new parts of the Chafalaya River. And one of those is the Whiskey Bay pilot channel. So they dug a channel right through Whiskey Bay and filled in parts of it. And now that's the main navigation channel and flood control channel on the Chafalaya River goes through Whiskey Bay. So it was a real place. I can't say what was hidden there. I don't know that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, I don't know anything about hidden whiskey there either. There might be some Jean Lafitte rumors out, out there yeah. too. Have any of you ever seen any kind of like a really unusual bird or animal in the area? Like a Bigfoot or something or a, uh, or a... No, it's pretty much standard thing. <laughs> yeah. No, I haven't seen anything, uh, anything um, really weird. One thing that's really cool, though, that we did this last year was uh, we set up um, a mobile Doppler radar unit out there to try to uh, see the clouds of birds that the little small birds that migrate and use the Atchafalaya Basin on their migration. And that was pretty cool because you could get on the the website and watch the uh, the radar um, and you could actually see what looked like you know these little clouds and they were migrating clouds of birds that the that the Doppler radar was picking up um, and you can see these sometimes on weather radars but our weather radars didn't uh, didn't make it across the whole basin and so we worked with the University of Oklahoma and the U.S. Geological Survey, Survey and the University of Delaware to to get a mobile unit. It was a radar unit on a trailer and we, we put it um, at our Atchafalaya Conservation Center. We're able to see these clouds of birds. So that was kind of cool. It was a way to see birds that's uncommon, uh, an uncommon way to see okay. birds. Um, how did, just quickly, how did the area do with uh, Hurricane Ida last year? Did it? Did okay. 
Yeah, we're yeah. a little bit further west. So it's actually the Chafalaya has been kind of lucky the last few years with all the bad hurricanes in 2020 in southwest Louisiana. The Chafalaya was just a little bit too far to the east. And then last year with Ida, Chafalaya was a little bit too far to the west. But hurricanes can be a major disturbance to these systems and knock down a lot of trees and stir up water and cause a whole bunch of issues. Hurricane Andrew was a big, there's a big issue with um, fish kills and downed trees after Hurricane Andrew back in 1993. But yeah. that was the last Gustav, major. Yeah. Gustav, again, uh, hit the basin uh, as well. But uh, Andrew uh, was, was really bad for the, <laughs> did a lot of damage. Well, I'm glad you two guys are there, okay? <laughs> um, we need you. Uh, with me has been Brian Piazza and Joseph Bastian, both of the, uh, with the Nature Conservancy. No kid, thanks for the kind of work you do. And I, I'm very impressed with your knowledge of all this. I mean, there's a lot of science and all this, and I appreciate it. And, and, and y'all seem overall optimistic. I mean, um, am I right? I mean, it seems like there are better things happening. Yep, we know how to solve some of these problems and and uh, make the basin a healthier place. And now it's just a matter of doing the work. Okay, if anybody's listening and said, "Man, I, I want to see some of this," where should they go? Is there any place they can go and get a good tour or get a good good information? Or well, if you want to like walk through a swamp uh, and see kind of uh, what a swamp, uh, how a, a swamp is, and and the flora and fauna of a swamp, we we really. Uh, I think Cypress Island is an excellent place for people to visit and also to you can kayak or rent kayaks or bring your own canoe or kayak get out on the lake and it's so accessible the Atchafalaya Basin is a is is a really wild uh, place that is um, is tougher to access so if you want a, a great place where you can get out um, or if you're a, a, a kayaker um, that wants to go and get in the basin I always tell people to launch at the Bayou Benoit boat launch on the western side of the basin and just paddle up into the trees. It's safe. There's not a lot of boat traffic uh, and you can get up in the trees in a matter of a couple seconds and it's not, the currents aren't really strong because um, the basin can get hard to paddle in, in some areas. The water really moves through there. So um, so that's, that's where I like to tell people uh, to go. And then if you have a boat, uh, drop in at one of the state's great boat launches uh, and and drive around and enjoy yourself um, uh, out in the basin. You could drive for hours and not see but a drop of it. Yep. And where's the best access to Cypress Bayou? To Cypress Island? Yeah, Cypress Island. It's You can look on Google and just Google Google Maps and it'll give you the directions to the visitor center. There's some parking there and then it's it's just south of Bro Bridge, like I said. So it's it's easy to get to from Lafayette or Baton Rouge or anywhere not too far on an interstate drive. My mile, whenever in doubt, go south of Bro Bridge. Everything That's right. Last thought there, including Lake Morgan. You can get some good food in Bro Bridge when yeah, you Yeah, yeah. Hey guys, thank you very much. I've learned a lot. Yeah, it's our pleasure. Thank, thank you. Thank you. Okay. Bye-bye. Appreciate it. Bye. bye. Thanks for listening to Louisiana Insider. Subscribe, like, and rate our show where you listen to your podcasts and follow us on social media at Louisiana Life Mag. Executive producer for Louisiana Insider is Kelly Massico in cooperation with Louisiana Life Magazine. For subscription information to Louisiana Life, call 504-828-1380. Our theme music was provided by Rich Collins. Hey, that's me. 
Join us again next week for more discoveries inside Louisiana.